the Eighth Circuit Network. We make things, put them in your brain. Hi, and welcome to Funk Radio, your favorite funk radio show. That's really not descriptive, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, I always screw it up every time I do the intro. It's okay. It takes a certain finesse. Yes. A certain showmanship. A funky finesse. Funk, yeah, there we go. I like that. <laughs> well, this is your host, Peter. And this is your host, Kyle. So I, we actually have a pretty interesting episode here today, don't we, Kyle? We do. Um, That's good. For this episode, because lately I've been listening to like a ton of jazz music because it's mellow. Jazz music, as you were, as you were saying before, Peter, really kind of works well in the wintertime. It's a very, a very wintry type of background music. Plus, with all the sad, disturbing crap that's been going on lately, it kind of just helps mellow you out, you know. Yeah. We thought it would be fun to discuss jazz's influence on funk and soul and disco and R&B. Basically, jazz is actually really kind of the first American genre and really influenced basically every single genre after. Well, it was also the first like African-American genre. Yes. Yes, which is really cool. Well, there's there's a bit of debate between whether that whether it's that or blues. Yeah, oh, like jazz is it's, like the big one though. It's the first popular genre that wasn't yeah. that wasn't confined to a region or a certain, I guess, economic level of black people. Yeah, like blues was. Blues was obviously coming from a lot of the songs that slaves would sing and uh, sad stuff like that. Right. So yeah, we want to discuss jazz's influence on the other genres that we normally discuss on Funk Radio, as well as discuss some of the uh, words that are commonly associated with the funk and soul genre and how their originations actually came from jazz music and culture. Well, yeah, it's kind of funny because I know at some point we decided that we wanted to have an episode that talked about the etymology of like you know how these words came about, uh-huh. you know, various ones, but then when you were doing research on it, you realized that a lot of these were jazz. Yeah. And I don't know if this is directly related, but I know you've been getting into jazz lately anyway, so it kind of works out that they kind of work together. Yeah, like that. that was my logic was, I'm like, okay, when I did the research for this one, most of the stuff came from jazz, so why not just talk about it while we talk about jazz artists? Right. I think that that is pretty groovy. Mr. Peter, would you like to tell us where the word groovy actually comes from? Well, the term groovy, I don't know if you know this, listeners, but it actually originated in jazz culture in the 1920s. It referred to the groove of a piece of music and the response felt by its listeners. It also referenced the grooves found in a record disc, the physical grooves, that is, in the vinyl disc. Yeah, if any of you listeners are old enough or hipster enough to have played a record, they have actual physical grooves in them that the needle fits neatly inside. Which is why records are regarded as one of the best quality formats that music can be played on because of how much data can be stored within the vinyl grooves. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's pretty cool. Now that we know where the term groovy came from, it makes it even funner to say. In discussing some very influential jazz artists that I think had the most influence on the subsequent genres of funk and soul and disco R&B, one person that came to mind immediately mm-hmm. for me was Thelonious Monk. Fun name. I think Thelonious Funk would be a cool name. Oh my gosh, right? I would be really hard-pressed if there wasn't like some obscure funk band that had that name. Well, there's a TheloniousFunk.com. Really? There's actually... Okay, I think there's a DJ called Thelonious Funk. That's pretty dope. Thelonious Monk, not Funk, 
was an American jazz pianist and composer, considered one of the giants of American music and jazz. He is actually the second most recorded jazz artist behind Duke Ellington, which is kind of ironic because he only wrote like 70 pieces of music, whereas Duke Ellington wrote over a thousand. Wow, that's crazy. That's are they, Were they around the same time, though? No, no, no. Duke Ellington was... Duke Ellington was like the tw- uh, 30s. He was the 50s and early 60s. Oh, uh, okay. I'm learning already. Yay. <laughs> Let's listen to a little clip of one of his more famous pieces. reason I call them pieces and not songs is because most jazz is instrumental. And I was instructed by one of our good friends that if it does not have words, it is not called a song. It is called a piece or a composition. It's only a song if there's like words to it or something. Uh, Let's listen to a little clip of Straight No Chaser by Thelonious Monk. Uh, pretty conventional jazz, especially within the piano realm. If, if you've listened to any type of jazz, it's actually pretty recognizable. A fun little aside that I just discovered while doing a little bit of research. Robert and Ronald Bell of Cool and the Gang, funk band from the 70s, were actually mentored by him because their father was a good friend of his. That's really cool. Ronald played bass, I believe, and I think Robert, one, one of them played sax, one of them played bass. Mm. And Thelonious for cool in the gang, and then yes, and th- they were they were trained by they were Thel- trained by Thelonious, Thelonious in jazz music, and then they made the transition to funk music because it was popular at the time. That's actually a case. Um, you hear that a lot actually with mm-hmm. the early funk bands, especially that they were yeah, yeah. trained in jazz, but then they hitched on the ride of the funk train, I guess. Specifically, a one that uh, came to mind was when we were discussing house bands, the Funk Brothers. Right. Very traditionally trained in jazz and would often, when not recording and writing songs for the different artists at Motown, would often go to local jazz clubs and play Mm. because that was like their first musical love. So speaking of funk music, turns out that the actual word funk comes from a Kalingo African word called lufuki. (laughs) And a famous uh, linguist, Robert Ferris Thompson, wrote, Funky has its semantics in roots in the Kokingo word lufuki, which means, quote, bad body odor. Mm. He says, both Jasmine and the Kokingo use funky and lufuki interchangeably to praise persons for the integrity of their art, for having worked out to achieve their aims. So within the jazz realm, I suppose, funkiness or being funky is sort of a radiation of positive energy and having an artist sort of uh, return to their roots or their fundamentals. Well, because I know like like if the air has a certain funk, it's like saying, oh, like it smells funny. So I mean, that, that meaning still carries through. Yeah, it's yeah, it's got it's got the uh, denotative meaning of, you know, a bad body odor. But then the connotation that goes along with it is that someone worked hard, either physically or artistically mm-hmm. and worked up a sweat, I guess, for lack of a better phrase. 
That's pretty cool. I've never heard that before. But I mean, that makes sense, though. That's cool. You know what's funny? If you really, really think about it and you look at funk music as a genre, yeah. more than other genres, it really holds its roots in jazz because jazz was so unstructured. Right, right. And funk music is very similar. It's very chaotic and messy and raw, whereas stuff like soul or R&B is, is much more... Uh, What's the term framed? So I think that really actually applies well to the genre. Yeah, I was I was I was gonna say well I feel that funk may be a little bit more structured than jazz. Oh, of course. I don't think there's any music that's less structured than jazz. <laughs> no, definitely. But um, I can because but there was more experimentation or musical freedom expressed in funk than like soul, for example. Experimentation, a large emphasis on individual instruments. Yeah. bass and drums they would have like these i mean the songs would go on seven ten minutes they especially like with parliament they'd have mm-hmm. these long expansive convoluted like drum or bass solos remember when uh, we were talking about concerts mm-hmm. and how with funk bands they would often expand on the music in ways that they didn't in the studio yeah i think that's i mean that's pretty much oh yeah what we're talking about here completely agree i think that experimentation has its influence in jazz because mm-hmm. often jazz musicians and jazz bands would kind of never play the same song twice in concerts. They would just play what they felt. So yeah, getting back to discussing some influential jazz artists, um, another one that came up for me is John Coltrane. He um, was a jazz saxophonist, and he actually had a fairly short career between 1960 and 1967, because unfortunately he died at the age of 40. Kind of sad. How did he die that young? I will get to that. (laughs) Oh, okay. John Coltrane, despite uh, his short career, did play with such greats as Miles Davis and Thelonious Monk. However, he developed a very bad heroin addiction that actually made him very difficult to pin down as a musician and led to some conflicts musically with other artists and unfortunately also led to his untimely death. Mm, That's too bad. There is, yeah, a theme that you will find if you do any sort of research. Jazz musicians did a lot of heroin, so kind of sad. I wonder if it helps them make the music that we know and love today. Honestly, I have no idea. I don't know if it's like a correlation doesn't, doesn't equal causation, but what? <laughs> I mean, Ray Charles even did heroin, so, and he's like the coolest cat <laughs> to ever be part of R&B. So yeah, that does not mean, children, that you should go out and do heroin, because despite the creativity that it may or may not offer, it will destroy your body and soul. That's true, and there's nothing worse than destroying your soul. I don't really have a tie-in for this like I did other ones, because I'm not that creative, but disco is another term that I would like to discuss the etymology of. So this has nothing to do with John Coltrane, it just... We're throwing it in, kind of side by side. Somehow, if we could maybe bring up the Bee Gees, because we seem to be able to do that well. Okay, fair enough. So, okay, B- I said the word, I said the name Bee Gees, so that means we have to talk about disco. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> yeah, disco, the word derived from the French word discotheque, which meant nightclub with recorded music for dancing, or also a record library. Came around in the 1930s. It was basically like you know they had record stores. That was the French word for record store, uh, discotheque, and then that transitioned into a place that plays music, which is what a disco was in the 70s. Because I guess in French, disco was a slang for phonograph record. And teca, as we know from other Latin words, means collection or library. Hmm. Donde esta la biblioteca, Peter? In El Baño. 
Mr. Peter, you took Latin in college, right? In high school. I took it for like three or four years. See, so this is probably even more familiar to you than me. I suppose. Did they have a lot of disco stores in Rome? <laughs> yes. They didn't have disco stores. They had discus stores. So do we, do we have a song by John Coltrane that you want to play? Yeah. One of John Coltrane's most famous songs and another, and another very recognizable piece. I would like you to listen to Blue Train. Yeah, it's really it's a really a mellow song. It's funny because jazz is so much associated with mellow music, but there can also be, I guess, more upbeat songs, as we will learn with our next artist. Another person I would like to discuss is the famous Nat King Cole. Was he a merry old soul? Nat King Cole was a jazz pianist. He actually branched out prior to that, I guess, in the swing genre mm. and stood toe to toe with such other swing artists as Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra. He is actually kind of known as being controversial during because he was he, be, he I guess came to swing in like the 40s and 50s and during that time there was still a lot of racial upheaval in America. He was known as actually being pretty controversial during that era, often suing hotels that wouldn't admit him while he was touring and went so far as to move into an all white neighborhood in LA. Wow, that's pretty ballsy. So, yeah, yeah, he was definitely one of the artists on more of the forefront of the civil rights movement. I think the reason being because he was one of the few black artists at the time to really make that cross from only being acceptable to blacks to kind of everyone liking him. Mm. I think that allowed him to get away with that more than say than other artists. Yeah. As we will listen with this song, as I was discussing before, jazz can be upbeat, and that King Cole was very definitely much more of an upbeat artist. So let's listen to one of his more famous songs, Hit That Jive Jack. Put it in your pocket till I get back. Going downtown and see your man. And I ain't got time to shake your hand. Hit that jive jack. Put it in your pocket till I get back. Time and time waits for no man. And I ain't got time to shake your hand. Standing on the corner, all full of jive. You know that you were boy, and I'll always give you five, daddy, I'll Hit that job, Jack, put it in your pocket till I get back. What does jive mean, Mr. Kyle? Yeah, for those of you that don't know in the song, jive uh, was originally the name of a dance style in the 40s, and it kind of became a moniker in African-American vernacular, and also referred to later on slang in the 70s for someone who was a liar or, or a trickster. Don't you jive me. In the 70s, jive meant everything from someone who, as you were saying, like a jive turkey, someone who's a trickster or a liar, <laughs> to jive was actually a, another moniker for, like, I guess, the monics of the 70s. Mm-hmm. Do you ever see that movie, um, Airplane? Yeah. <laughs> Remember when the two black guys in like, the back are talking and the, and the stewardess is like, what are they saying? And then the old white lady in front of them is like, oh, I speak jive. <laughs> Anyways... Another artist that I want to discuss, who is very influential and one of the earlier jazz artists, um, is Benny Goodman. 
because he was an American jazz and swing musician. He was a clarinetist, and he was like a le- band leader, because mm-hmm. back in the 30s, big band jazz was like a big thing. Yeah, I was actually into that a lot, actually, maybe a year or two ago. I used to listen to it a lot more. I still do it now and then, but uh, Benny Goodman is one of the, the big guys of that whole oh, type yeah. of music, so it's good stuff. Yeah, Benny Goodman during that time was known as the, quote, king of swing. In 1938, I guess he held a concert at Carnegie Hall in New York City that was described as the single most important jazz or popular music concert in history because it was jazz's first, like, world debut as a form of respectable artful music because before it was confined to you know harlem and that area right that was the first time it was performed for like uh an international audience Mm. really and they're like hey this is pretty catchy this is jazzy i would like to play for you the piece sing 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 by benny goodman which is arguably one of if not the most recognizable jazz slash big band piece probably out there so this is sing 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 really funny the first time i remember hearing this is in the 90s it was in an abisco commercial really and i don't know why so every time i hear it i think of oreos (laughs) they like animated these oreo guys playing jazz music and this was the song that was playing so now i just always associate it with oreos now i want oreos (laughs) see the the advertising is still working to this day right well you know (laughs) that whole concept of like you know when you associate a sound with an event Whenever that sound is replayed, you associate it with that event. Kind of like that movie, Clockwork Orange. Except I didn't go insane. Or like Pavlov's dog. Exactly. Except it's, instead of the dog, it's us and it's Oreos. We're salivating over Oreos when we hear Sing 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 by Benny Goodman. <laughs> Moving on past Tasty Tasty Oreos. Aww. Um, another artist I would like to discuss is Wes Montgomery. One of the most famous jazz guitarists, arguably probably second only to Django Reinhardt. Wes Montgomery briefly played with John Coltrane's sextet in the late 50s before becoming a jazz leader himself with the release of his first album in 1960. I think it was called something like The Great Jazz Pieces of Wes Montgomery. Pretty, uh, pretty creative stuff there. Yeah, man. Sadly, similar to John Coltrane, he died at the height of his career in 1967 of a heart attack. We don't know whether that was drug-related, I guess. I don't know if it was drugs or just a bad ticker, but... Mm, That's too bad. Let's listen to a little clip, uh, one of his most famous pieces, The Natural Blues. Thank you. 
sure you listeners could definitely hear there was a bit of a blues influence in the piece, as it was actually pretty common with the jazz renaissance of the 50s. They infused a lot of blues melodies into their pieces. So yeah, Wes Montgomery, probably one of the best jazz guitarists. When I actually started playing guitar in high school, before I even really got into jazz... Did you make a band? No. Called Kyle and the Storms? (laughs) No. (laughs) It was just you. (laughs) I had a guitar teacher, and before I even liked jazz, he introduced me to Wes Montgomery because he was just a really dang good guitarist. Him and Django Reinhardt, actually. Did that help inspire you as a guitarist? A little bit. Maybe not since you stopped playing. Yeah, well, I stopped playing because, for lack of a better term, life got in the way. Uh, I just never started back up. Well, there's still time. You're still young, Kyle. Yeah. Moving forward with our jazz episode, another artist I would like to discuss, probably one of the most famous, is Louis Armstrong. Yay. He was a very important and probably the first soloist to come out of jazz and was a master trumpetist, which is a pretty rare instrument, even in jazz. Yeah. Louis Armstrong began in the 1920s and continued his musical career basically until his death at 69 in 1971. Hmm. Unlike the other jazz artists who unfortunately died either in their prime or very young, he did jazz for a very long time. Yeah. He was renowned for his charismatic stage presence and voice almost as much as his trumpet playing. He's got, like, the best voice ever. I like to sing a song. That's actually very, very good, Peter. Wow. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes your impressions are a bit iffy, but that was actually spot on. I give you kudos. Yay. (laughs) Not as good as my Eddie Murphy impression, but Louis Armstrong, his influence, obviously because of his fame, extended far beyond jazz music. And by the end of his career in the 1960s, he was pretty much regarded as one of the most profound influences on popular modern music in general. Mm Mm-hmm. He was one of the first really, truly popular African-American entertainers to quote-unquote cross over, whose skin color became secondary to his music in America that was still, for the majority of his career, pretty racially divided. I read that because of his sort of crossover and acceptance by the white masses, Mm -hmm. he was, even during the upheaval of the 50s and 60s, fairly reluctant to kind of get involved in the civil rights movement, Mm. which kind of made some of the black cultural leaders kind of miffed at him. Do you think he was worried about maybe upsetting his white fan base? Yeah, I'm sure it was purely like just not, you know, don't rock the boat. Yeah. But yeah, I was reading though that although he was fairly timid in his, I guess, speaking out regarding civil rights issues, in the 50s there was a famous riot and he was actually fairly spoke out against that, so... Mm. One of the few racial conflicts, I guess, that he actually had some involvement in. Right. Let's listen to Louis Armstrong's LaVey and Rose, who some of you may know is Edith Piaf, another a French jazz artist, actually did a cover of this in French, even though the song was originally. I actually, I didn't know who had done it first. I guess it makes sense that he did it first. Pretty sure he did, because his was recorded before the 30s, and she wasn't even famous until the 40s. Mm. So yeah, let's listen to a little bit of Love and Rose by Louis Armstrong so you can hear his awesome voice. Hold me close and hold me fast The magic spell you cast this is love and rose. When you kiss. 
gives me heaven size and though I close my eyes I see love and rose. A lot of you may recognize that from the movie Wally because it was used in that and I freaking love that movie. Yeah. So that just gives him a little bit more kudos. He passed away in like the what's as I said 1971 so. Yeah. Uh fun fact in the movie Wally there was a major reference to the movie musical Hello Dolly. Right. Hello Dolly was originally written on Broadway in the early 60s and Louis Armstrong composed a song for the musical called Hello Dolly which won him a musical Emmy. So I guess oh, there's Well, I think that's like the most famous song from that musical, right? Oh yeah. So it's just funny that like that's also mentioned in Wally, which also ties back to Louis Armstrong, which was also played in That's the probably how they ended up choosing that song for the movie. I mean, I would be surprised if they didn't come to that conclusion through that, you know? Yeah, and obviously who the director, uh what's his face? Andrew Stanton. The director Andrew Stanton obviously was influenced enough by jazz and that musical to make that connection. So kudos to him. He made an amazing movie. That's true. Yay. Ooh, I think we have another etymology alert. Wait, wait, I got I got a tie-in. I really dig Wally. <laughs> what does dig mean, Kyle? Dig, in the colloquial sense, is a jazz term meaning to know or understand completely or to agree with. Often used in reference to musical taste or understanding of musical pieces. I can dig it. I'm like one of the few people that's really trying to bring that phrase back because I've gotten to the point where I say it so much I use it in everyday conversation. <laughs> Not just for this radio stuff. I do it so, now and then. Not that, probably not as often as you, though. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I don't know if I just sound like a dork when I do it, or if it's, like, cool because it's from a bygone era, so I seem hipster. I don't even know. I think we can bring it back. You know what word I can pretty much assume everyone agrees it's better than? Swagger. Swagger is not a jazz term and was invented by sad, sad people. That's cool, I guess. <laughs> well, let's move on to our next artist, then. Yeah, this artist I wanted to throw in here because he is undoubtedly like the best example of the connection between jazz and funk because he's really kind of a living bridge between jazz and funk. And that artist is Herbie Hancock. Herbie Hancock was actually employed and mentored by the great Miles Davis and played jazz piano in his band for a quite a long time, all the way up until 1968, when he left to write his own funk album, called Fat Albert Rotunda. Okay. So yeah, he basically was influenced by jazz, mentored by Miles Davis, and then just went off and made funk music because he could. That's crazy. Really from that point on, though, Herbie Hancock would continue to evolve both the jazz and funk genre to become sort of a chameleonic figure of music. As some of you listeners know, he kind of was all over the place with genres. He influenced everything from funk with his aptly named song Chameleon, to electronic music with his piece uh, Rocket, Mm. which was a 1983 hit that also had a really awesome music video. (laughs) It was one of the first music videos during the breakout era of MTV when music videos actually existed. And it was pretty pretty awesome and kind of provocative. It was a bunch of like female mannequin robot legs doing weird stuff like flipping and kicking. You know, um, when I first started getting myself into into funk music a number of years ago chameleon by herbie hancock that was one of the first songs that i actually got myself into really yeah that's pretty cool it's a good song because it's like it's jazzy but it's also it's like like you said it's kind of the bridge between jazz and funk and it's like 15 minutes Mm -hmm. long so it's a pretty cool song song. yeah i mean he has he has some really weird stuff like watermelon man yeah that's like jazz slash african music 
Yeah, exactly. Honestly, check him out because no two songs that he did, I think, sound similar. Yeah. Except maybe his some of his jazz stuff. Yeah. So yeah, um, the song that I picked out to listen to is Wiggle Waggle because I think it was really the best example of his infusion of jazz and funk together. So let's listen to a little clip of that. You can definitely hear his saxophone, very jazzy, but then there's an undertone of like funky bass and percussion in there that sounds really awesome. Good stuff. Very good stuff. So yeah, Herbie Hancock, uh, he's still alive and still making music. Really? So like I said, living bridge. Nice. Last artist to discuss, who is unfortunately not alive, Billie Holiday. I thought I didn't want to be misogynistic, so I'm like, okay, I got to throw a female in there. And at first I was going to be like, okay, I'll throw Nina Simone or maybe some Ella Fitzgerald. But yeah. Billie Holiday was really kind of the first uh, and influenced all those other artists. She was really the first popular jazz singer to move audiences with emotional feelings of classic blues. It's really funny because she rose to fame in the, like, the late 20s, early 30s. But before, before her in like popular music, singers didn't really have any sort of emotional inflection in their singing. It was kind of a very constrained range. Mm. And they often didn't really write even their own songs. Their songs were written by professional songwriters that they just sang because they had a good voice. So she was a massive revolutionist in the genre of pop music because she wrote her own music. She sang with emotional inflection implying that you know the thing she's singing about she's lived through or she's done which before then i mean i, I not enough people prob uh, listeners of ours probably can even relate to this because it was music from like the 20s unless maybe you watch boardwalk empire i don't know <laughs> before the 30s music popular music was basically a handful of songs written by famous songwriters about random subjects either religious or just dorky like I love a gal and she's really pretty kind of junk. It was a very much a career and artists would often do what's called song plugging where they would just sing popular hits that people liked that weren't written by them or really weren't, they weren't associated with any way other than because they were famous for their voice. So it was more, it was less singer oriented and more song oriented in general. Exactly. It was just people with good voices sang the songs that weren't written by them that were written by songwriters or people kind listen of, to it for the song not necessarily because they like the singer exactly mm. and she really kind of bucked that tradition completely by writing a lot of her own songs performing them with emotional inflection and didn't really want to do that whole song plugging that other famous artists of the day did so she helped really redefine popular music uh and singing in general because of her insistence that the art and the music was her own and that there was real feeling behind it. That's really cool. Sadly, so, and again, there's, this is a trend as we see throughout jazz, she was arrested in 1947 for heroin possession, which kind of irreparably damaged her career 
So she didn't necessarily die then, but she got in trouble. But in, I don't remember the exact year she died, like mid mid to early 70s, she lost a battle with like a failing liver and while on her deathbed was requesting heroin. Wow, that's really sad. Sad outcome to a really great artist, but she was very influential and had a ton of hits between like the late 20s and 40s. What's one hit that you would like to listen to, Kyle? Yeah, let's listen to one of her uh, better songs called You're My Thrill. You're my thrill You do something to me You send chills right through me When I look at you Cause you're my thrill You're my thrill How my heart increases That was thrilling. You can thank yes, yes it was. You can obviously see the inflection in her voice, the emotional range she has. It's hard to believe that really she was kind of the inventor in a, in an essence a popular inventor of that. Mm. Okay, that's a song that you can really boogie to. <laughs> what does boogie mean, Mr. Kyle? My connections between artists and words are becoming more and more like hollow well, as it's, we go. It's the last one, so you can't so get I, any worse than this one. <laughs> I, yeah, my puns are done. Hey, that rhymes. Okay. Maybe you should start rhyming instead of punning. Yeah, because it's funny. Ah, uh, didn't even rhyme. Dang it. I'm not even good at that. Okay, the term boogie is short for boogie-woogie, which was actually kind of a blues term dating back to the late 20s, meaning to dance or move. It also refers to a term that uh, began in the 1910s, boogie, which meant a rent party or a house party. Rent party was like an old-timey term. It was a house party in which a band performs. Mm. So when they say we're going to have a boogie, that means we're going to have a party, it's going to be a band, it's going to be a lot of fun. Sounds cool. So yeah, to boogie means to dance or to have a lively musical party, and then would go on to be used in disco and funk. That is the end of both our etymological discussion as well as our exploration of jazz artists that were major influencers of funk, soul, disco, and R&B. Yeah, well, that was highly educational. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us, Kyle. I'm sorry, Peter, I kind of left you out of the loop a bit, because... Hey, that's fine with me, because I don't know anything about this compared to you, so... It's always good to, to switch it up a little bit so that not only can you listeners learn things, but we on Funk Radio learn as we record. Yeah, we grow with the uh, with the episodes that we do. We grow with you. So yeah, a lot of good artists there. I can easily list another dozen or so, and I was really having trouble deciding who I wanted to play because there's a lot of really good ones. Yeah, Jazz is undoubtedly one of the most influential genres of music to ever come out of modern America. It's kind of hard to tie it down i mean such a short like episode anyway because it is because it's so massive it's yeah it's massive it it still goes on today it's it's like the never-ending genre that's always kind of been in the background i mean it's still around today too so it's just kind of cool influential musical genre in both music and history itself and in vocabulary yes and in american vernacular so, do we have anything else we can discuss, Peter, like children using tablets? Oh, I saw The Hobbit last night. What is your opinion? Because 
I saw that it got like 68% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is abysmal. But the people that saw it, and I guess the fans, were just like, whatever. Like, they don't care. They don't care that it sucked. The conclusion I've come to is that it was really well done, and it feels like another film basically in the same series. It It does feel that way. I think the reason people may be getting a little upset, or if it may not be meeting their expectations, is because they're expecting this to be on the same level as The Lord of the Rings, whereas The Hobbit, if you've read it or if you're familiar with it at all, it's not. It's just simply not on the same scale as The Lord of the Rings. It's a much more confined book, and if I, if I'm correct, it's really even not nearly as long as any other. No, one. it wasn't, and it's it's it only involves a fairly small number of people compared to Lord of the Rings, which was, you know, they have so many different storylines going at the same time with all these different characters. Yeah. Now, this is a a smaller scale story, but the reason I really enjoyed it is partly because it just, it feels like you're just right back into that same, that same world and, Mm -hmm. you know, and that, and everything it feels really cool like that, but also because the way that they kind of foreshadow things that, that happen in Lord of the Rings in ways that are really, it's really interesting because, kind of the way that they reference things in Lord of the Rings in a way that they don't really have to outright explain because everybody's already familiar with those movies. Mm-hmm. So they say, oh, okay, this connects, or this is going to lead to this later on. Whereas if they had made The Hobbit first, you wouldn't be getting those same kind of references like that. Uh, so I, I find that really cool. Question. Yes. Because I know the thing that a lot of critics did complain about is the fact that even though the book is like 300 pages, they're splitting it up into three movies. Did the pacing feel, like, forced to you because of that? Honestly, it felt fine to me. Okay. It, it felt okay. I think I sort of wish they would have stayed with the original idea, which was to make it into two movies, because I think it is big enough where they could split it into two legitimately. But three is kind of just pushing it? Something that my sister was telling me, because I saw it with her, she said that a lot of what they're doing, they're, what they're putting into these movies, is kind of like com- companion books that... Um, Tolkien wrote kind of companion books to The Hobbit that kind of explain mm-hmm. the backstories of some of these other minor characters. So they're, they, he, they're incorporating some of those works as well. Into the film to kind of add to the... Okay. Yeah, so they're doing that. That's encouraging. For what it is, and it's not Lord of the Rings, it's not meant to be. I think that just seems to be confusing to some people. I would say it was very well done for, for what it's supposed to be. So I really liked it. I remember when it first, when the trailer first came out, about people complaining that... It was ripping off Lord of the Rings because they didn't wow. realize that The Hobbit was part of the same storyline. <laughs> I thought it was like a separate thing. I don't know if people thing. can possibly be that stupid, but <laughs> yeah. As George Carlin said, imagine just how unintelligent the average American is, and then realize that half of them are dumber than that. <laughs> well, that's a good way to wrap up our show, I guess. It's a funny quote. Yeah. And I, yeah. But yeah, I would I would definitely uh, if you have any. Well, that's in- well, that's good because honestly, like after seeing the poor review it got, I was worried because I was stoked for it, and then that review completely deflated my expectations, mm-hmm. which may be good because I mean, it may just have been one of the most overhyped movies in mm-hmm. the world, and just completely unable to live up to the uh, grandioseness, I guess, of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, both because the story is so confined and because. It's just not Lord of the Rings. As long as you go into the movie understanding that it's not the same, the exact same thing. I mean, The Hobbit was basically written, it was basically written the lead-in to Lord of the Rings, so it's kind of the backstory. 
of what happened that led up to those other movies or those other books, you know? Very cool. I am now renewably excited to see it. Thank you, Peter. We should probably conclude the episode before we just go completely mad with power. I hope you've enjoyed our delving into the jazz music. This has been DJ Kyle. And this has been Peter. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed our topic. And we love you. Yeah, we do love you. Oh, oh, and if you listen to us, go to my website, kyleinstorms.com, because you can subscribe to Funk Radio there and also check out all the cool stuff I do with my copious amounts of free time as a freelance artist looking for a job. Sounds cool. Hopefully that will encourage more people to subscribe to us as I apply to jobs and spread my creative wares. And your love. And my love. Love you guys. Bye. Bye. For more podcasts and the latest news in gaming, movies, and entertainment, visit 8thCircuit.com.